Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep the special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Eric. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm a compulsive reader. Uh, on October 12th, I celebrated 12 years of abstinence. I'm maintaining somewhere between a 50 and 60 pound weight loss. I don't know about some of you, but as I approach the higher levels, I you know quit weighing myself, <laughs> and you know, though we'll never know what the top number was. Uh, so I have uh, 12 years of abstinence. I've been around the program since 1992. Uh, and so I'll, I'll share my story. I try not to spend too much time on the past, but I came in in 1992 uh, uh, desperate for some recovery. I knew I was a compulsive overeater, and I knew I had a lot of issues. And I was very lucky at the time to uh, have a sponsor that got me through the steps, got me recovered. I lost a lot of weight. Uh, and uh, to be perfectly honest, you know, at that time I worked the steps, but I don't think I really understood what they were about. I didn't understand how to sort of interpret them and make them a part of my life. Uh, I was one of those that took a service position, maybe two sections of service positions, and then after a year thought I was an emeritus member of this program, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and of course, true to form, I, I slowly drifted away. And uh, by 1995, I was back at the food, out of recovery, and from 1995 until, uh, as I said, October 12th of uh, uh, 2011, uh, I really struggled to get back on this program. One of the problems I have is dishonesty. And the dishonesty with you is very minimal. It's not a real issue to me. It's the dishonesty I have with myself, you know. I lie to myself constantly, and, and, you know, and I have found that by not being able to get honest with myself, that was another big struggle I had getting recovery and program. Uh, as a child, I, w- I became a compulsive overeater very early, probably by the age of seven. Uh, I was a latchkey child, That's something that doesn't even exist in today's world. Uh, you know, but my, both my parents worked. I had 3.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon alone in the house with a loaf of bread and butter and cinnamon laced with sugar, you know. And, and uh, I was probably the only eight-year-old that was really current on Mike Douglas and whoever his you know, host, co-host was for the week and, and what, you know. Uh, anyways, you know, I, I got this disease early. And it's kind of interesting in hindsight because I come on both sides of my family. There's a lot of alcoholism. And I think at seven, if I could have got the alcohol, I wouldn't have been so overweight. You know, <laughs> I, I would and I would have been in a different program. But the truth was I needed something to escape my own life. Uh, I was bitter, you know, selfish, self-centered. Everything the big book says that is, you know, uh, the, the very roots of our disease I had as early as seven years old. Uh, through most of my childhood and into my adulthood, I was a very passive-aggressive person, you know, and that that kind of behavior and my compulsive overeater, as I said, really ruled my life for a long time. So came in in 92, lost my abstinence in 95, and struggled for the next 15 years, but then I finally came back 
uh, as I said, in uh, uh, October 12th of 2011. I've told the story before, and I always like to include it just so you know someone to whom it happened to. Uh, both my parents work. I had a sister that was 10 years younger than me, and I took care of her, you know. Uh, and she was like, you know, she was like a daughter I never had, which is horrible because no one should be, you know, like a parent at 10 years old trying to. But, but I was exceedingly close to her, and, and she meant the world to me. And uh, uh, what happened the year before I came crawling back in the program was she died in a head-on collision making a cell phone call. So I just want to share that, you know, I'm two degrees of separation. That happened in my life, and it does happen that serious things can happen when you use your cell phone and drive. Uh, and for the year after that, I was just going right down into hell. You know, uh, I always think of the Shawshank Redemption. My favorite line in that movie is when Morgan Freeman says in jail, you got to make a decision to get started living or get started dying. And for that year, I was really trying to die as quickly as I could. I had a spiritual experience on my sofa that day, and I realized that I needed to crawl back into this program and figure out how the hell it works and, and how to work the steps for the first time and really make sense in my life. Uh, I was very lucky... Uh, I went to the famous Sunday meeting in Studio City, uh, and I shared, I'll never forget that day because I pitched for three minutes and I shared just the most incoherent three minutes of just babbling, and two guys, uh, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, came up to me after the meeting and said, you know, if you'll go meet us at this place, we're going to come over and help you. And I get a little choked up when I think of that, because they really did help me work the steps for the first time in my life. And uh, to really have come this far after 12 years and still be abstinence, I'd like to just maybe share uh, with the time I have how I have found the steps work for me in the program. Uh, and uh, anything I say is a tribute to all these people in program. I try to listen in program, and if I say anything wise or any of that sort, it's usually because I heard it from someone in program. If I say something that doesn't make sense in program, that is uniquely my fault, and I hope you'll uh, you know, find me and correct me later today. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, the 12 steps... Uh, uh, can be interestingly divided into four groups. I, you know, it took me a long time to realize that the goal of those 12 steps is not only to access a spiritual experience for the first time, but learn the skill of reacquiring that experience at will. Uh, and that was something I really didn't understand the first time. You know, I, it's interesting. I had a, a meditation teacher once talk about the fact that, you know, the problem with the spiritual experience is it usually comes on suddenly and we don't know how it got there, you know, and there we are in that experience. And the problem is it doesn't last. You know, most any experience of, of a sensual nature, of a sensory nature that is of any consequence usually requires our intention, the object of that intention, and our contact with it. And so we don't know what happens when we have the spiritual experience, but in the absence of knowing what we did to acquire it, that experience will fade. You know, and so I have found that the 12 steps are the most magnificent recipe for reacquiring that spiritual experience. And as I said, I divide them into four groups that line up very well with the Four Noble Truths, but I'll talk about it in this way. Uh, I found that for my own recovery, I had to do four things. The first thing is I really had to comprehend my disease. I had never really done that before, but I had to comprehend it. The second thing I needed to do was abandon the causes of my disease. The third thing I needed to do was acquire that spiritual experience of consequence of my, you know, of my own making with the help of a sponsor for the first time. 
And then the fourth thing I needed to do is develop the skill to reacquire that experience when I needed it. You know, the big book talks that we can get a daily reprieve contingent upon our fit spiritual condition. And the question for me became, how do I acquire that fit spiritual condition and access it when I need it and sustain it for as long as I can on a daily basis? And so... uh, Again, this is how I've seen the steps. You know, the first three steps, to me, all go together, and they're all about really being able to comprehend this disease when you're coming in as a newcomer. Because step one is, to me, an intellectual concept, powerless over food, dash, uh, my life is unmanageable. And it took me a while to realize that, number one, I fabricate unmanageability so that I'll have a reason to eat. And in the absence of, uh, you know... uh, Uh, creating something that makes me feel unmanageable, I'll use the excuse of boredom to try and change the way I feel using food. Another thing I had to realize is that left to my own thoughts, I will eventually go back to the food. And I think that's really important. And that's the, the key to me in comprehending. And that's really step two. When it says, came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, to me, what I really had to come to understand is step two is my recognizing that left to my own thoughts, I will never get out of the food. You know, without the help of a sponsor and this program and the connections that we make and share, uh, I'll I'll go back to the food. And, and, you know, and I'll wind up there and wonder how I got there every time. And so step two to me is about realizing that I need outside help. And uh, the third step to me is really the final part of comprehending my disease because I had to come to a point where I realized that I couldn't figure out how to stop eating compulsively. With the help of others and their ideas, I could, and I had to make a decision to be willing to take that advice from others. You know, uh, I am part of that group that they call sober eating where I had to become willing not to make an arbitrary food decision on my own. Over the years, I've discussed everything that goes in my mouth with my sponsor, and there isn't a day goes by that, you know, what goes in has not been worked out with that person so that I can know at any moment whether I'm abstinent or not. I try never to live in the gray area. You know, my recover, as a recovered person, I am an infant. And uh, having been a teacher, you know, they always teach us in classroom discipline that, you know, a child before the age of eight or nine is, is a child that needs to live in black and white. Whenever we create grave for a child at that age, that's what confuses them, and that's what confuses me in my abstinence. But having sort of comprehended my disease, which I think steps one, two, and three do, the next thing I have to do is abandon the causes. And to me, uh, steps four, five, and six are all about identifying and abandoning the causes. You know, for those of you who have worked a step four and five, to me it's real magic. You know, that, that uh, the big book shows us how to make columns and shows us how to take our resentment and sort of identify our part in it and frame it in a way that we can share it with another person. And if you have ever, had, ever done a fifth step, it's fascinating. The majority of our resentments and fears and sex issues and everything else that can disappear just by sharing them with another person. A great deal of them do not disappear, and that's what the steps are for down the road. But I think the sixth step is really important to abandoning the cause of my disease because the sixth step, I don't think steps six and seven ever get enough mileage. But step six is where I realize, you know, uh, that I'm entirely ready to have God remove my defects of character. And I find it fascinating that defects of character suddenly appear in step six with no real indicate, you know, of where that suddenly appears. But 
what I've learned over time is that most of my resentments that I have, and I still have, you know, I get resentments every day like anyone else, but for the most part, my resentments are a byproduct of my character defects. And the more I can get rid of my character defects, the more I can live a life without resentments. It took me a very long time to understand that, and I'm still learning it, and I'll talk maybe a little more about that later. But so step six to me is part of abandoning the cause, and between step six and seven, that's where to me the trudging the road of happy destiny occurs. Because step seven is not only me taking those character defects, but making also a decision in step seven to begin working on them and to try to eliminate them to the greatest extent possible. And we can't, I have many character defects that took eight, ten years, and some that I'm still working on. But at least on a daily basis, with the help of my sponsor, you know, I'm working on those. And step seven to me is so important in sort of identifying character defects and attacking them one at a time. Over my years, you know, uh, especially like my selfishness and so forth, you know, through the help of sponsor and other people's in program, uh, my sponsor has learned to identify whenever I'm getting in that frame of mind where I'm about to turn and go the wrong direction. Uh, and he's been able to say, hey, you know, you're about to do this or do that. Uh, as I said, I was very prone to be passive-aggressive. And the worst thing about being a passive-aggressive person is I was never able to do something nice for somebody and feel good about it. You know, for me as a passive-aggressive person, I always couched it in a narrative. I either did something for you knowing that every time I ask you, you never do anything nice for me. Okay, there's a little hate and resentment and so forth there. Or if I've never asked you to do anything nice for me, I already help you understanding that down the road when I ask you to help me, you won't. You know, that's the narrative. I fabricate that narrative and I live in it as a self, you know, uh, uh, as a passive-aggressive person who's selfish and self-centered. Uh, so as I said, you know, step seven is, is the beautiful way to point myself down the road to work on my character defects. Uh, steps uh, eight and nine to me are instrumental in sort of acquiring a spiritual experience for the first time and understanding the value of sort of getting debris out of my way so I can move through life uh, a little easier. To me... Uh, the damage I'm done is like landmines, you know? And if I don't make things right for my past injustices, uh, like a great example is, you know, friends that I've cheated out of money. You know, if I don't make that right, every time I'm with those friends, I'm reminded of how much I cheated them. You know what I'm saying? And once I'm reminded of that, the resentment that goes along with it is just right there for the taking. But if I make things right with that person, I at least open up the door to encountering them in a whole different way. You know, uh, and uh, I'll give you a great experience or, or example of how that worked directly in my life. Uh, so I got abstinent in October, and that Thanksgiving I had to go to a family event. And I've never done good things with my family, you know, because usually most of my resentments are against my family. Most of my passive aggressiveness is against my family. And my brother makes me even angrier because he is immune to my passive-aggressive behavior. <laughs> you know, if you're passive-aggressive, you really want the person to understand why your odd behavior, you want to get them to comprehend that message, and it goes right over the head of my brother, which only makes me angry. <laughs> so I'm getting ready to go see my family for Thanksgiving, and I'm sharing with my sponsor my anxiety, and, you know, and then they're, gonna, and they're not going to do this for me, you know, and then I'm going to show up, and they're going to be blah, 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 blah. And my sponsor said something that really began to change my life. He said, what if you go and just think about being of service to your family. And I had never even thought of that. 
And I will say that that early on was my first experience in trying to learn how to feel good about myself by being of service to others. You know, I never want myself to feel good. That's my nature. You know, I want to punish myself. One of my early sponsors used to say over and over, he'd say, Eric, I wish you would quit beating yourself up so I could get a chance. You know, uh, and, and, you know, and a lot of the work that my sponsor today has to do is helping me sort of reevaluate events when I do pass through something with anger and resentments and so forth and so on. When we get to the other side of it, we really have to evaluate what happened to figure out what, the, what goodness occurred for me in the process because I can only ever really see the bad parts of me and I can always see them. I can make them up when they're not there, you know. And so that's my real problem. Uh, and by making things right, uh, there's a fellow that used to, has taught the big book at the OA birthday party. I don't know that he is this year, but his name is Lowry Sherniak. Uh, he shares his last name and his... his uh, uh, whole big book study is available on the OALA website. Uh, and he made a comment once that has always stuck with me. And he said, you know, the ninth step promises, when we work the steps and we get to the end of step nine, we should sit down with our sponsor and review the ninth step promises. Because those ninth step promises are an inventory of a spiritual experience. And as he said, and I've always remembered, as he said, you know, when you finish step nine, if you can't check off the boxes of every one of those things mentioned in the ninth step promises, then it means there's something that you'd missed when you worked the steps the first time. Something you've got to flag to go back and work on again and again. So, with luck, you know, to me, when you arrive at the end of the ninth step, uh, we should have, you know, created a spiritual experience of some sort that, that's memorable for us, you know. And I remember that, too, that, that beyond the experience that brought me back in program, getting to the end of Step 9 was the first time I really began to see that, oh, this is what it's about. I'm supposed to create, you know, learn how to create an experience that I can get access to. Over the years, that's what's allowed me to realize that I used to go to meetings and set up chairs because... It was a way to be helpful. A lot of people don't show up early to meetings, and I could help and feel that I had done something good for the day. You know, I remember I was so desperate when I first came back in the program on this abstinence. I went to a 100-pounders meeting that first week, and uh, there was a guy I wanted to ask to be my sponsor, but I was terrified to ask him to be my sponsor. But nonetheless, at this meeting, he shared uh, the following comment. He said, you know, even if you have only been in the program one day or two days, you can turn around and shake the hand of a newcomer because you're an example of what it looks like a day after they've been in. And that really struck with me. And in my desperation for recovery at the time, I actually changed my working schedule so I could show up at meetings in the morning. There was a 7.30 meeting every day in the valley, and I would go there at 7, and I would sit there and shake hands and say hi to people as they came in, and then when the meeting started, I would drive to work. Because it got me, you know, sort of used to being in touch with people. Left to my own nature, I'm a very shy person. And even though I hide it very well because I was a teacher for 30 years, that exists for me. That's one reason, you know, uh, that I can imagine so many things in my head. You know, 90% of the things I imagine about reality in my head are completely untrue. Uh, and it's taken me a long time to understand that. And I still have those fake ideas in my head, but at least today, thanks to the help of this program and the help of my sponsor, I can often stand aside from those things realizing that's not true, it's not real, 
you think it's real, but it's not real, you know. Uh, uh, but sometimes that's the best I can do. On a good day, I can sort of recognize its faults and actually move forward. Uh, which, which brings me to the last part. To me, I have learned over the years that steps 10, 11, and 12 are three ways to help me develop the skill to reaccess that spiritual experience when I need to. You know, some of you, and I certainly felt that when I did the inventory and made amends the first time, that was, that was how I sort of had a spiritual experience that was profound for me at the moment, to understand that if I've leveled the field and, you know, and, and corrected all the wrongs that I have, you know, made that I can think of, uh, it feels pretty good, you know. It feels pretty good. I've learned that when I am wrong and I make an apology to somebody, you know, that helps me feel a little better about myself and helps them, you know, to thankfully not hate me so much. Uh, uh, you know, and so uh, the the daily, rec- you know, the daily inventory of step ten I find has been has been very helpful. Step eleven has been one of the most uh, helpful steps for me in program. Uh, and I was going to say I was going to say one thing about steps two and three for me. Uh, you know. One of the big things I had to learn when I first came in, because we are supposed to make a contact with a higher power, uh, and whether or not you're atheist, agnostic, or do have a spiritual concept in the world, the most important thing I had to learn when I first came in program is I can't just do something because I think my higher power has told me to do it. I need to share it with someone who can help me decide whether or not it's possibly a true message, you know, or a fake message. The reality is, you know, in my disease... My disease becomes my higher power and tells me all kinds of things. You know what I'm saying? It tells me, you know, why I deserve to eat that and what to eat. And especially in the beginning, if you're not careful, you know, again, the voices inside my head are going to lead me back to the food. And by having the help of a sponsor and the help of, you know, knowing people in program, it's my own opinion that I believe when the big book talks about we will intuitively know how to handle things that used to baffle us, for me, that real intuition has come from calling my sponsor 27 times about this person that's pissed me off, you know, in the same way, and he says, well, you know, inventory, is, what, is, is it this, you know, uh, and every time it's selfishness, you know, or whatever, self-centeredness, and after about the 27th time when it happens, well, I just handle it the way he has been telling me to handle it 27 times in a row. So suddenly I don't have to call him because I know exactly what he's going to say and what I should do to get you know off that and back on and, and into my life. Uh, so that's very helpful. Uh, step 11 to me has been, has, has been one of the things that's really helped profoundly change my life. I do believe that there's a great power in prayer. I think it serves so many purposes, even as an amulet when we are scared and in that situation where we cannot call someone a prayer, something, a beatitude to tell ourselves and remind ourselves can be very helpful. Meditation, I was just going to say a couple of things uh, because that's the thing that for me has been most profound in my recovery. it always saddens me when I hear people say how much they struggle with meditation. Because meditation to me is a skill. I had a, a lot of luck that I ran into a monk about 15 years ago. I had meditated since I was 15, but even I have gone through meditation styles that really did you know, nothing for me. And even I have experienced the sitting for 20 minutes and just waiting for the 20 minutes to be up. 
Uh, but I never gave up, and I kept looking. And as I said, I ran into a monk about 15 years ago, gave me a new concept for meditation, and it has been a very profound uh, experience for me. To me, there's two great things that you can get out of meditation if you really take a look at the 11th step and, and pursue it. To me, meditation uh, uh, offers me two great things. The first is, uh, if you meditate as a skill and develop it as a skill, uh, there is a thing called a meditative absorption, when you can concentrate wholly and completely on one thing, either a mantra or your breath, things will really change inside your mind. And uh, as the monk taught me, the beauty of practicing that skill and trying to acquire that is that is the only sensual or sensory experience we can access in life that only requires an object inside ourselves. So, for example, I'll say this, you know, I binged all these different foods, and one of the worst parts about my disease is I was one of these fellows that always thought this next binge will be the binge to end all binges, you know. And, and so I would have whatever it was, you know, you, uh, I was a, primarily a sugar addict, so I would eat some sugar-based thing, and then the next day I would think, well, but I really need to eat this, you know, and then I'd be often running in another direction. The other thing is, as, as this person once told me, you know, where are those binges from last week? You know, I can remember binges I used to have, but they're never as strong as they were right in that moment. You know what I'm saying? Contact with my binge food is what, you know, feeds my addiction and makes me wind up, you know, feeling as awful as I am and passed out on my couch from too much sugar and so forth and so on. Uh, and my memory of those are never enough to satisfy the urge to go back to it. But meditation, and my practice at meditation, has taught me to access something that maybe doesn't completely replace a lot of experiences, but it is a nice feeling experience, and it can be interpreted as a spiritual experience that once you learn how to attain it, you can access it whenever you need to. Uh, the second thing I've gotten through meditation uh, after several years is if you can get and sustain a good place in your meditation, for the first time in my life, I've finally been able to look at things I do to myself in life to create my own suffering, if that makes sense. You know, like I mentioned, my problem with my addiction and disease is all roads lead me right back to the food. And the thing that, you know, I've, I've learned through this meditation all these years is, again, I fabricate 80-90% of the things that make me suffer in life. And once I can get in a good place in meditation, you can begin to look at those things and you can, you know, over time begin to realize, why would I go there? Why, you know, why would I ever engage those things? And so that's been the second thing that has been very helpful. And that's a continuing struggle. But to reach a place in my recovery where now sometimes during the day things can happen and I can consciously know that I can, you know, fester over that or I can just let it go and move on. And to be able to finally do that is a real miracle of my recovery. Because before I would upset, you know, part of the problem I have with my disease is I can obsess about something over and over and over and over again. I don't let go of stuff. My mind, left to its own devices, runs a thousand miles an hour. Uh, and, and so as I say, step 11 has been very profound uh, uh, help in my life. And the last thing I'll say is step 12, uh, which is where we carry the message to others who are still suffering. And sponsorship is amazing and phenomenal, but for me over time, as I say, one of the greatest miracles I've gotten in program is to finally learn in my life that I can do something for another person 
to make myself feel good. Do you know what I mean? That if I do come and help set up, I can do that just so I can leave in the morning knowing I did something nice for somebody else. And that's a feeling and an experience that I was never able to access in my disease. You know, And of all the character defects I had to work on, that was the one that took me the longest. It's really only uh, you know, arrived in the last three or four years of my recovery that I've ever actually been able to do something nice for people and feel good about it and actually want to go and do it. And that's all a direct result of whatever recovery I've been able to achieve uh, from this program and the 12 steps. And it's quite compelling. I retired last year, and even I was shocked, and my sponsor and I laughed that someone asked me, what do you want to do in retirement? And I said, what I would most like to do is move back east and be of service to my family. I did have a fantasy that I would move to the East Coast where I have a nephew and four great nephews, and I thought I would go there and, you know, and I would be, you know, uh, you know, an integral part of their family and, you know, and pick up the workload and so forth and so on. Interestingly enough, I got there and found out that really was not the case. You know, they wanted me near, but they didn't want me in, you know. Uh, and uh, so I moved on from that to my brother and sister-in-laws. Perfect. Uh, I can't believe I made it. Uh, and, you know, with the same hope that I could be of service to them. And they, my brother is phenomenal, and my relationship to him is incredible today as a direct result of the recovery I've achieved. It's, it, it baffles me. But even there, uh, I really wasn't able to be of the service that I had hoped. But this is the part that's so weird. You know, as I mentioned, I, I punish myself. I never think what I think is right. And I'm one of these people that really doesn't feel, you know, on, on any given day you could ask me, I don't feel I have any good friends. You know, I don't think anyone really likes me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole time I was gone, my friends back here were calling me, seeing how I was doing. And, you know, program people and people not in program. And, again, with the help of my sponsor, you know, he would keep going to, you You know, they might be calling you because, you know, they like you, they want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> and, you know, and I can't hear that. I can't comprehend that. And the weird irony is before I left, uh, uh, a friend of mine, I, uh, she and her husband, I taught with them for about 10 years at a school, and her husband passed away a couple of years ago, and uh, her, her, one of her sons lived with her for a while, but she was living alone in the house, and before I left, she said, you know, when you come back, if you want, I have a basement, you know, give me a call, you can stay there. Now, I'm a really shy person, and uh, I was, you know, back on the East Coast, ready to come back here, and I was finding every excuse not to contact this person. Oh, they just said that in passing. It was just this, that, blah, blah, blah. I didn't do it. But again, help of sponsor, people in the program, they said, look, there's no harm in just calling and saying hi to that person. And I called them, and I said hi, and they said again, hey, I've got this space. Do you want to come? You know. So anyways, when I came back here, uh, I did take that act of kindness, and I've been living with this person, and I come to discover... As I said, a couple of interesting things. I've been of service out here to my friends in a way that I wanted to be with my family and never could find that access. And this person I'm living with is a very sociable person, so it's hard for her to live alone. The fact that I'm there, you know, gives her someone to talk with. Uh, she had to ha have some work done on the house. I've been able to be there to work with the contractors, talk with them and negotiate. And son of a gun, I'm of service to this person. And even crazier, I love it. 
I, you know, <laughs> when I do something nice for this person, I feel really good about it. And as I say, that's the real miracle of my recovery. And that's the thing that I'd like to leave you with, is that the person I am today is profoundly different from the person I was 12 years ago, even the person I was four years ago, because some of this stuff has really only showed up in the flat last few years. But... I'm grateful that I at least have the foresight and the knowledge today to sort of acknowledge those changes in who I am as a person and be fascinated and in awe even myself. And I was telling someone the other day that it's sort of like the old Wizard of Oz story, that there I went, you know, traveling to Oz on the East Coast thinking that was where I needed to be and the place I could really be of service was back here at home the whole time. And that's just really wonderful, and I want to thank you all for giving me a chance to speak today. And with that, uh, I want to thank you for letting me share. Oh, sure. Are there any questions? All right. Sure. Hi, Carol. Um, Can you you say a little bit about um, practicing principles in all our affairs? How... Can you repeat the question? Yeah. Uh, the question is, can I speak a little bit about practicing, practicing these principles in all our affairs? Uh, one of the big things I do today, especially when I have to, uh, you know, as I say, something horrible has happened and I have to have a talk with somebody that, you know, I'm angry at or upset about, uh, the most important thing I do today is write it down, share it in an email with my sponsor, and give it a little time. You know, that's one thing my sponsor says is, you know, we want a couple of days to talk about it, make sure. Because, you know, one of the things that I have to do to practice the principles in all my affairs is if I have an issue with you, you know, I need to talk to you about it in a way that doesn't dump on you, that recognizes the problem, but doesn't, you know, uh, uh, as I say, push it all on you. You know, if you look in the big book on the sections on making amends, there's a lot of great information in there about being careful when you have to encounter people. Are you just dumping on them so that the problem moves over to them and you can walk away, or are you really trying to resolve it? And so that's one of the most important things I do to practice the principles, uh, is I work with others and I make sure when it's something awful or difficult that I have to say to someone, I've worked it out and gotten some ideas and some help from others. So I don't just go there and shoot off the mouth and then wind up having to inventory shooting off the mouth and then going back the next day to apologize for, you know, shooting off the mouth. So, yeah. Does that help a little bit? Sure. Yes. Thanks so much, Eric. Oh, sure. So what does sponsorship look like for you? So uh, sponsorship for me... uh, you know, I do think that we have to, have to set an example. I have been able to sponsor a few people over the years, and I've sponsored three fellows now. Uh, and and uh, I do think it's one of the most enriching things. You know, I do think, uh, I don't know if others have found, but, you know, one of the most in, uh, wonderful things, like when you talk to a newcomer, is it reminds you of where your head was when you came in, you know, because... Uh, 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 it really helps me, as I said, to understand where I could be if I lose sight of this program. In any way, I can then, be, as I said, be of service to that person. That's very helpful, too. Uh, so I do try to sponsor, and I do try to engage people. And, and you know, and uh, I don't take it personally when they leave or when they fail to work the steps, but I do take it as an opportunity to be of service and do the best that I can to help them. Yeah. Anything else? No? Yes. Thank you so much.
much. Um, you talked about sober eating, and so could you just elaborate on that? Does that mean that you still send all of your food to your sponsor? Or is that yeah. used all throughout the years? Or what is that? That's, like? a, that's, a, that's a really good question. So again, the, the concept behind that is just that I do not make an arbitrary decision about what I eat, especially at the point of food, as I like to describe it. You know, I do commit my food the day before uh, because I figure, again, away from the food and, and not involved in it, you know, I can possibly make a sane decision. When I share it with my sponsor, you know, I, I've had a number of times where I've read some article saying, if you eat this, you know, it'll improve your that. And I'll call my sponsor and say, oh, my God, I had this pack because it'll improve the that thing. You know, and he'll be like, just keep eating the way you're eating, mm -hmm. you know. But I will give you another thing that I do that has been very essential to my recovery. I went to an inclusive resort last year because some friends wanted me to go there. And, uh, uh, you know, I got my tickets full five or six months ahead of the trip. And I knew I was going there. And, hell, it was an inclusive resort, a dangerous place for, you know, uh, compulsive overeater or an alcoholic because I discovered these people I guess go to inclusive resorts all the time and they all showed up with one of those big gulp mugs <laughs> <laughs> and you know and, and so I mean it was one of those things but here's what I did uh, you know months before I got there I contacted the resort and I got the menus of every restaurant they had there and I looked at the selections and I shared them with my sponsor, and we came up with two choices that I could make at every restaurant, or at any restaurant. Because I did tell them, I said, you know, on any given moment, I'm not going to have the decision of where we go. I'm going to have to go with wherever they think they want to eat that night. But that's a way that I took care of my own recovery. So when I went to that resort, no matter where we went to eat, I went, oh, okay, that's the, you know, whatever. That's the spaghetti, or that's the this, that's the, the chicken and the salad. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I take that seriously. Even now when I go out to eat with somebody, if I know the restaurant we're going to, I'll look up the, you know, that's one of the great things about the Internet now. I can look up the menu, see if there's a safe food. Uh, uh, I'm a pretty serious sugar addict. Uh, and, you know, a lot of salad dressing contains corn syrup or high fructose or uh, things of that sort. And so I've learned over the years that at most restaurants I'll ask for the dressing to be on the side. And I'll do, you know, I'll dab it and, you know, and accept it or refuse it, you know, based on that. Because that's better than ordering the salad and have it show up and find out I can't eat it. I was at a dinner last night with a bunch of compulsive overeaters. And I was getting this salad, but a bunch of the guys ordered this uh, steak dinner that included a vegetable. And they all got carrots. And my sponsor was there and he bit into the carrots and you could see the expression of his face just, you know, he just was downtrodden because they had put some sort of, you know, sugar syrup on these carrots. <laughs> he wound up with a third of his plate unedible, you know. And, uh, uh, and so that was a little depressing, but, you know, but they didn't eat the carrots. And, and you know, and we all got through that. But so it's that kind of caution. <laughs> yeah. I do take that serious. I do take that seriously. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. How's your daily relationship with your higher power? Very good. I, you know, I, I appreciate that. As I mentioned, one thing I do is... Can you repeat the question? Oh, yes. Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, could you repeat the question? It's how do <laughs> my daily... How does your daily um, practice with your higher power? With my higher power. Yeah, thank you so much. So, I try to meditate twice a day. Uh, I won't uh, uh, mention the time, but I do meditate for a considerable amount of time because I view it as a skill. Uh, and I do use that time, and I do use that time to sort of 
make a contact with my higher power, understand how my mind is interfering with me and so forth. And then I pray throughout the day. I, and I'll finish with this. I don't believe that any higher power, uh, you know, takes care of me individually in life. But to this day, if I'm in a mall or at a restaurant and I get a good parking spot, you can always hear me go, hey, thank you, God. You know, <laughs> as if God is up there going, hold everything else off. We've got to get Eric a decent parking spot. Yeah. So anyways, with that, thank you very much for letting me speak. It is now time for our seventh tradition. While we have no dues or fees, we do have expenses for this meeting, and each group ought to be fully self-supporting through its own contributions. A suggested donation of $3 or more is the group conscience of this meeting. On the final Saturday of the month, we pass a second Support Your Intergroup basket. While our treasurer passes the baskets, I have asked Natalie to read the 12 traditions. I am Natalie Compulsive Over Eater. The 12 traditions of Over Eaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose to raise with one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has its one primary purpose. To carry its message to compulsive readers still suffers. Six, an OA group but never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. Less problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, OA readers anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, OA readers anonymous has no opinion outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity, the level of press, radio, film, television, other public media of communication. And twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before Thanks, Natalie. Okay. I would like to thank all the people who do service at this meeting. Your secretaries are Brooke and Lysanne. Program chairs are Lucy and myself. Treasurer is Jesse. Literature, Leslie E. Chips and Candles, Kiko. Podcasters are Rachel and Francesca.